to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, May 26th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. DeSantis officially launches his 2024 presidential bid. A UN official and others in Armenia were reportedly hacked by Pegasus spyware. Germany enters a recession. Net migration to the UK hits a record 606,000. The Oath Keepers founder is sentenced to 18 years in prison. Canada and Saudi Arabia announce plans to restore diplomatic relations. 14 million Syrian refugees are reportedly at risk of losing their homes. The UN says 500 migrants are adrift in the Mediterranean. U.S. cities will reportedly pay a record $80 million to people injured in the 2020 BLM protests. And a paralyzed man walks again following brain and spine implants. In our top story, DeSantis launches his 2024 bid on Twitter. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, Washington Examiner, NBC, Guardian, and Wall Street Journal. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced Wednesday on the Twitter Spaces forum that he will be running for the Republican ticket for the 2024 U.S. presidential election. The announcement experienced technical difficulties on the platform that immediately drew fire from GOP rival Donald Trump and U.S. President Joe Biden. In DeSantis's launch video released earlier in the day, he said things such as, quote, crime infests our cities. Riding the ship requires restoring sanity to our society, and argued that he, quote, chose facts over fear, education over indoctrination, and law and order over rioting and disorder. During his audio-only interview with co-hosts and Silicon Valley icons Elon Musk and David Sachs, which reached 600,000-plus listeners after first enduring technical issues, DeSantis touted his resume of banning critical race theory in schools his legal battle with Disney, and touched on issues such as fighting gun control. The interview came as DeSantis, who leads all GOP contenders other than former President Donald Trump in the polls, yet still trails Trump considerably, also filed his candidacy with the Federal Election Commission. He is set to meet with top financial backers in Miami beginning Thursday. DeSantis won re-election for Florida governor by a landslide last year and has since implemented many right-wing policies regarding race, gender, concealed carry rights, and LGBTQ rights. The Twitter campaign launch comes as Musk has recently dipped his feet further into politics, including tweeting last year that he previously supported Democrats but would vote GOP in the 2022 midterms and potentially support DeSantis in 2024. All right, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were our facts. Let's start the narrative spins with the Democratic narrative from the New York Times. The Twitter tech issue debacle sums up perfectly the disorganized nature of both the DeSantis campaign and the GOP race in general. The governor is trying to tout his culture war accomplishments while simultaneously seeking the approval of the Trump base, though it doesn't help that he polls better among college-educated voters than non-educated. As for distancing himself from Trump, DeSantis also promised to build the wall, a clear imitation of the former president. The GOT is still stuck between a rock and a Donald Trump. Newsweek gives us an anti-Trump narrative. The most important question to ask when running for president is, can you win the general election? And the answer is certainly in DeSantis's favor right now. Donald Trump may be leading in the primary polls, but only DeSantis has proven capable when it comes to defeating 
the incumbent Biden in swing states such as Arizona, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina. The GOP needs a big comeback win in 2024, and DeSantis is the shrewd next-generation administrator to lead the party into the future. But wait, we also have a pro-Trump narrative from Revolver. After months of experts claiming Trump could only win the primary, the tide seems to be shifting. Trump will undoubtedly crush DeSantis in the primary, but recent polls suggest he could even beat Biden by four points in the general election. This is because voters understand that under Trump, the country was strong economically and from a security standpoint. We all know Biden only upholds the deep state and woke policies. The numbers also show Rust Belt voters are too unsure of rookie contender DeSantis to give him their full support. And from time to time, the Metaculous Prediction community contributes their nerd narrative, and this one says there's a 21% chance that Ron DeSantis will become U.S. president by 2029. When something doesn't work and there's someone down the chain sweating about it, that my, my mind always goes to that person. Someone was so panicked that it was someone's job to make sure this thing was working and it didn't quite work and that person wasn't feeling so good. Scott, I think you'll do better next time. <laughs> You're right. I promise I'll do better next time. I promise. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. A UN official and others in Armenia are hacked by Pegasus spyware. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Access Now, Politico, Forbes, Bloomberg and The Guardian. A group of researchers on Thursday published a report alleging that 12 individuals in Armenia, including journalists, human rights activists, and at least one UN official were hacked by cyber intelligence firm NSO Group's spyware Pegasus between October 2020 and December of 2022. While the researchers didn't tie the hacking to a specific government or entity, they reportedly found some circumstantial evidence linking it to the long-running military conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the contested Nagorno-Karabakh region. In addition to the UN official, other individuals allegedly targeted include then-Armenian official ombudsman Christine Grigorian, two Radio Free Europe journalists, and a former foreign ministry spokesperson, among others. Israeli-made Pegasus is known for its ability to remotely control and monitor iPhones and Androids. NSO Group has previously prompted international outcry after its spyware was allegedly used on journalists, politicians, lawyers, and NGO workers in countries including Mexico, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia. The investigation was led by Access Now, Citizen Lab, Amnesty International's Security Lab, and independent Armenian mobile security researcher Ruben Mirajian, with researchers saying this would be the first documented instance of the spyware being used during a military conflict. Neither the NSO group nor the Armenian or Azerbaijani governments have commented on the alleged attacks, However, an NSO spokesperson said the firm investigates any improper use of its technologies and has broken off multiple contracts in the past. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. We have two spins, and the first one is Narrative A coming from The Guardian. The NSO group refuses to engage with or acknowledge the overwhelming forensic evidence tying spyware to many cases of human rights abuses and oppressive regimes. This usage of spyware shows the risk of the technology being used to fuel geopolitical conflicts. This should alarm everyone. Narrative B comes from Herats. NSO follows all industry policies, religiously investigating credible allegations of misuse of its technologies, and terminating when appropriate. 
The problem of abuse of surveillance technologies doesn't lie with the company, but rather the fact that there needs to be a global regulatory cyber intelligence framework to address the responsibility of governmental operators. In our next story, Germany enters a recession as consumer spending tumbles. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, ABC News, CNN, Reuters, The Guardian and Associated Press. Germany's economy has underperformed forecasts, shrinking by 0.3% in the first quarter of 2023 after contracting by 0.5% in the final three months of 2022. These two consecutive periods of contraction mean Europe's largest economy has entered a recession. Germany's Federal Statistical Office initially predicted that the economy would narrowly avoid a technical recession, with gross domestic product stagnating in the quarter. However, unrelenting inflation caused increased prices and a resulting decrease in consumer spending. Household expenditure was down 1.2% in 2023's first quarter, as families needed to save money to account for soaring energy prices. While gas has become more expensive, the price of natural gas has returned to levels from before the Russia-Ukraine war. Finance Minister Christian Lindner said the new GDP numbers showed, quote, surprisingly negative signals as Germany continues to manage its previously high dependence on Russian energy and immense inflation. Germany has cut government spending by 4.9% while maintaining a tight monetary policy so far in 2023. While a strong economic recovery doesn't appear to be in the cards, Germany did see a growth in private sector investment and construction. Dutch banking executive Karsten Berzeski says this wasn't the worst-case scenario, but added that the German economy will have to deal with this for years. Berlin's year-over-year inflation for April sits at 7.2%, as other developed countries around the world struggle with similar problems. The U.S. and Eurozone both reported very uninspiring growth numbers, yet the U.K. defied international monetary fund expectations by avoiding a recession. Thanks for those facts, Eric. Narrative A comes from Daily Mail. Germany's economy is collapsing. While some German bankers and bureaucrats may try to project confidence in a swift recovery, there's no evidence to suggest that Germany's economic outlook will improve. German leaders have shown they have no idea how to tackle inflation, and unfortunately, consumers will be bearing the burden of high prices for the foreseeable future. Narrative B comes from Bloomberg. While it's disappointing to see that Germany's economy has met the technical definition of a recession, there's no reason to panic. Investments continue to grow, and the European Central Bank will continue its fight against inflation. Poor GDP growth is definitely not a positive, but it's not the primary concern as Berlin looks to lower prices and increase consumer spending. These actions will bring the entire economy back to normal. Net migration in the UK hits a record 606,000. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Guardian, CNBC, and Reuters. According to the UK Office for National Statistics, or ONS, the nation received a record 606,000 net migrants last year, driven by non-EU nationals, refugees under the government's new Ukraine visa program, and those migrating for work and education. Despite four years of prime ministers promising to curb migration, this represents a 24% increase from 488,000 the year prior, with long-term immigration estimated at around 1.2 million in 2022, compared to a total of 557,000 leaving the UK. The government has also emphasized that many new arrivals are from Ukraine, Hong Kong, and Afghanistan, 
with the number of people arriving through humanitarian routes increasing from 9% in 2021 to 19%. The pre-Brexit net migration average was between 200,000 to 250,000, with Home Secretary Suella Braverman having said she wanted to reduce it to tens of thousands. Though Prime Minister Rishi Sunak had promised to keep it below 245,000, he declined to detail a specific goal this week. As an election next year is likely, Sunak and his conservative party must balance calls from party members and other pro-Brexit voters to slow legal immigration while also addressing labor shortages in many sectors. Among recent policies enacted by Braverman are restrictions on student visas, the central cause of migration to the UK, with only post-grad students now allowed to bring family members with them to the country. Scott, thanks for those facts. Our first spin is a right narrative coming from Sky News. The Conservative Party's immigration goal is in line with what the public needs and wants, which is why Braverman is clamping down on the countless immigrants abusing the system. While a small calculated number of students and workers are necessary for the economy, the government must not leave current citizens out to dry by replacing them with new arrivals who only cross the border to gain access to British education and jobs. And the left narrative spin comes from The Guardian. Brexit accomplished what economists and others predicted, a fall in traditional EU immigration and a rise in non-EU, lower-skilled workers. This has left the nation grasping for workers in many sectors, though at the same time hasn't increased the wages of the existing population. At this point, the government shouldn't try to hinder immigration anymore and allow those who wish to work in the UK to do so freely so the economy can rebuild itself in the wake of the pandemic. And the nerds from the Metaculous Prediction community offer their narrative, saying there's a 50% chance that the UK will reapply to join the EU by January of the year 2049. The Oath Keeper's founder is sentenced to 18 years in prison. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, BBC News, Fox News, Newsmax, NPR Online News, and Axios. Oath Keeper's leader Stuart Rhodes was sentenced on Thursday to 18 years in prison for plotting to forcefully prevent the peaceful transfer of presidential power, the longest term so far imposed over the January 6th Capitol riot. The former U.S. Army paratrooper and Yale-educated lawyer who founded the right-wing group in 2009 stayed outside the Capitol and took phone calls and messages while other Oath Keepers entered the building. Prosecutors had sought a 25-year jail sentence claiming he masterminded the plan that included, quote, quick reaction force teams at a Virginia hotel to convey weapons, which were never deployed, into Washington, D.C. The ruling marks the first time that the Justice Department's request for the so-called terrorism enhancement was granted for a January 6th case, as the judge agreed that the Oath Keepers attempted to influence the government through intimidation or coercion. This comes nearly six months after a jury found Rhodes guilty of seditious conspiracy and multiple other crimes. He pledged to appeal his conviction and sentence. Five other members of the Oath Keepers have been convicted of seditious conspiracy for their roles in January 6th since last November, with a federal court jury also finding four members of the Proud Boys guilty of the crime. CNN brings us the Democratic narrative spin on this story. This tough sentence will hopefully have a chilling effect on far-right extremist groups, making it harder for them to recruit and raise money as the 2024 presidential election approaches. As the Justice Department has been successfully bringing those liable for the Capitol riot to justice, it's time to hold Donald Trump, who is the root of this problem, accountable as well. InfoWars gives us a pro-Trump narrative for this story. Like Trump, 
Rhodes has been persecuted as part of a political witch hunt. No Oath Keepers in January 6th were armed or took part in any fighting, yet its leader was convicted by an obviously biased D.C. jury. Those who participated in the January 6th riots are overcharged political pawns. This prosecution will surely backfire, however, serving only to boost distrust in government. And we have a nerd narrative on this story. The Metaculous community predicts there's a 2% chance that the U.S. will enter a second civil war before the year 2031. Canada and Saudi Arabia to restore diplomatic relations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, DW, First Post, Reuters, Middle East Eye, and Global News. Saudi Arabia and Canada announced on Wednesday that they will resume diplomatic relations and appoint new ambassadors, breaking five years of poor relations after a dispute over human rights severely strained ties between them. In separate statements, both nations' foreign ministries said they intended to restore diplomatic relations to the, quote, previous level, with Ottawa announcing that it had appointed Jean-Philippe Linteau as its new ambassador to Riyadh. A Canadian government source familiar with the matter reportedly said that as a result of the agreement, punitive trade measures against Saudi Arabia, which was Canada's largest regional export market in 2021 at $1.65 billion, will be lifted. Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie stressed the need to maintain communication despite disagreements in order to find global solutions to global problems, while Roland Paris, Trudeau's former foreign policy advisor, called Saudi Arabia an important player in the region. The resumption of ties based on mutual respect and common interests was prompted after Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau held sidebars at the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum Summit in Bangkok last year. In 2018, Riyadh expelled Canada's ambassador, recalled its own envoy to Ottawa, and severely restricted bilateral trade. The move followed social media messages by Canada's embassy in Riyadh and the Canadian Foreign Ministry calling for the release of women's rights activists. Thank you, Scott. Our first spit is Narrative A, coming from CBC. Despite Saudi Arabia's questionable human rights record, Ottawa made the right decision in resuming diplomatic relations. It was Saudi Arabia's aggressive response to Canada's justified criticism of the detention of human rights activists that led to the rupture in the first place. Bin Salman, however, has begun to focus his country's economic policies on attracting foreign investment and tourism, and Canada welcomes this move. Common interests should not be overshadowed by disagreements, and only a solid foundation for dialogue will lead to understanding and change. Narrative B comes from the Wall Street Journal. The Canada-Saudi Arabia rapprochement fits into Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's recent diplomatic spree to polish his image and position the kingdom as a major player in regional and international politics. However, Saudi Arabia continues to crack down on free expression and human rights activists. While some activists were released in 2018, many remain in detention, and more have been detained in the past year. Canada should be careful not to put its interests before its values when dealing with Saudi Arabia. According to a report, 14 million Syrian refugees are at risk of losing homes. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Syrian Network for Human Rights, Middle East Monitor, Al Jazeera, and BBC News. According to a report from the nonprofit watchdog Syrian Network for Human Rights, or SNHR, released on Thursday, as many as 14 million Syrian refugees face massive obstacles to returning to their homes 
as the Syrian state has the authority to lawfully seize land and property. The report claims the laws in question principally target three groups. 12.3 million forcibly displaced persons, 115,000 forcibly disappeared persons, and 500,000 victims who have yet to be registered as dead in the civil registry. The Syrian laws passed in 2012, 2015, and 2018 reportedly targeted opposition strongholds, empowered administrative units to deduct land from private properties outside zoning areas, and allowed the government to re-register property ownership if their proprietors fail to claim their lands. The findings echo a similar report released in April, which accused the Syrian regime of being part of the forgery and theft process to steal homes and properties of exiled Syrian refugees and reappropriate them to supporters of the government. This comes as increasing pressure is being put on refugees to return to Syria, including from neighboring countries such as Lebanon, wherein more than a million Syrians have found refuge since the eruption of the civil war 12 years ago. The report also comes as Middle Eastern nations are normalizing relations with Syria, which had been diplomatically ostracized. Last week, the Arab League readmitted Syria after more than a decade of suspension. Thanks for those facts, Eric. The pro-establishment narrative comes from the Syrian Network for Human Rights. The Syrian regime's cynical use of legal procedures to appropriate land from refugees is appalling and is a significant hurdle for refugees returning home. The regime systematically destroyed opposition areas and has now appropriated the land for development by pro-regime actors. This criminal regime must be held accountable by the international community. The establishment critical narrative is coming from the Syrian Arab News Agency. The refugee issue must be dealt with systematically, and one of the first steps to alleviate the suffering of Syrians is the removal of sanctions. How can refugees return to Syria when the government cannot deliver relief or rebuild after 12 years of war? Cooperation with international and regional actors is necessary to solve this issue, and global sanctions are making humanitarian suffering worse. The UN claims 500 migrants are adrift in the Mediterranean. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by La Prensa Latina Media, Yahoo News, Al Jazeera, and CNN. On Thursday, the UN's International Organization for Migration reported that a Europe-bound vessel from Libya carrying approximately 500 migrants is in distress in the Mediterranean Sea, alleging that Italian and Maltese authorities have so far not responded to rescue calls. The IOM's warning echoes those of several nonprofits, with Alarm Phone, an NGO that alerts authorities when migrant boats are in distress, first reporting the vessel's condition on Tuesday. The vessel has been at sea for several days, and there have been reports that it's experiencing engine failures. According to the Italian-based humanitarian organization Emergency, Italian and Maltese authorities have traded responsibility for rescuing the boat. Alarm Phone announced its own rescue operation but lost contact with the vessel on Wednesday morning. The news comes as several Italian Coast Guard missions have seen around 1,200 migrants rescued in the last 24 hours, with a vessel carrying 671 people due to reach the port of Reggio Calabria later on Thursday. Every year, tens of thousands of migrants cross the Mediterranean Sea on unsafe dinghies. As of Wednesday, nearly 50,000 people have reached the shores of Italy compared with close to 18,000 people in the same period in 2022. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a left narrative coming from the European Council of Refugees and Exiles. Southern Europe is currently in the middle of a refugee crisis. 
The irregular border crossings into the EU across the Mediterranean have quadrupled in the first quarter of 2023 compared to last year. What are the authorities doing? Malta doesn't respond to distress calls, and Italy is pushing back boats to Libya. It's a deliberate hands-off policy that sees innocent people drown. This perpetual cycle of abuse must end. And we have a right narrative from the European Council on Foreign Relations. The refugee and migration problem in the Mediterranean has exposed a solidarity crisis in the EU. There's no mechanism in place to share the responsibility for hosting migrants. As a consequence, the countries on the southern border are overburdened by a continual influx of migrants and forced to argue with the other nations in the north over which of them should host asylum seekers who reach Europe's shores. Italy and other southern nations can only rescue so many. Yeah, this is a touchy political situation, but it does feel like one of the tenets of the things you can count on are that if you have a distress signal at sea, someone will come save you. That seems like, you know, the rules. Yeah, well, tell Tom Hanks that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that happened to him in Castaway and also Captain <laughs> Phillips. He just, just stay off the water, man. It's not it's not good. And then the shrimp boat from Forrest Gump. Oh, yeah, I know. Stay off the water. Stay exactly. on dry land, man. Oh, my Jeez. goodness. According to a report, U.S. cities to pay $80 million to injured BLM protesters. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Wall Street Journal, CNN, and Fox News. Three years after George Floyd's death sparked nationwide protests against police brutality, at least 19 cities reportedly will pay more than $80 million in settlements to protesters who were injured by law enforcement during the demonstrations. There are many high-profile examples of cities paying large sums. This March, New York City settled with more than 300 protesters. For $21.5,000 per person over accusations, police boxed them in and beat some of them. Philadelphia later that month settled for $9.25 million, with 343 plaintiffs claimed that the police response to the protests left them with, quote, physical injuries that, in some cases, required medical treatment and hospitalization, as well as emotional anguish. Atlanta paid $105,000 to photojournalist Sharif Hassan for arresting him while he took pictures at protests in that city. While it's unknown how many people nationwide were injured by police in protests, other cities that have paid settlements include Portland, Oregon, Denver, Los Angeles, Oakland, Milwaukee, Kansas City, San Jose, and Washington, D.C. Thanks for those facts, Eric. The Intercept brings us a left narrative spin. These settlements go a long way toward holding police accountable and hopefully changing law enforcement methods going forward. These and other settlements are being made possible by technology that allows the public and police to see exactly what occurred. This will help to inform how to fix policing that's harming citizens, in addition to costing taxpayers huge amounts of money. And the right narrative comes from Free Beacon. It looks like crime really does pay. Those receiving settlements engaged in violent and chaotic riots that caused irreparable harm to American cities. Yet, they're receiving money because police were trying to do their job. America will never recover from the so-called racial reckoning of 2020, as crime will continue to soar in cities where the left continues to demolish law enforcement. These payouts will only encourage more lawlessness. 
you hear about cities or municipalities, like we don't have any money to, to pay our teachers. We'd like to, but we can't. But you never hear about a place not being able to pay a settlement like this. Where Where's this money coming from? Uh, you didn't get the uh, notice in the mail, Scott? Oh, I'm covering it this time? <laughs> you yeah. are, yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah. Hey, I got, I got this one, guys. Okay, so I'll okay. pick up the check. <laughs> get out the checkbook. <laughs> you got to be careful when you pick up a check off the table. You never know how much it's going to be. Yeah. Absolutely. I've been surprised a few times. Uh, Yikes. Our final story, a paralyzed man walks again after brain and spine implants. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Nature, CNN, BBC, Independent, NBC, and The Guardian. On Wednesday, a proof-of-concept study published in the journal Nature revealed how a Dutch man, paralyzed by chronic tetraplegia, was enabled in community settings to stand and walk naturally with the help of brain and spinal cord implants. Gert-Jan Oskam, the 40-year-old patient, was told he would never walk again after his legs, arms, and trunk were impaired following a cycling accident in China 12 years ago. However, after doctors inserted two disc-shaped implants into his skull, which read his brain signals and send instructions to two sensors attached to a helmet on his head, Oskam could initiate movement in his leg and foot muscles by thinking via a second implant in his spine. Gregoire Cortine, a spinal cord specialist based at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, stated that the technology captured Oscom's thoughts and translated them into a simulation of the spinal cord to reestablish voluntary movement. Oscom, who can now stand unsupported for approximately two or three minutes, told reporters that he recently took the walker and the paint and successfully painted while standing. Described by Swiss researchers as a digital bridge between the brain and spinal cord, the implants have enabled Oscom to climb stairs and walk for more than 100 meters at a time since the operation. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from iNews. Several advances in specialized spinal cord injury treatment have occurred in recent decades. But this latest experiment is a medical first that has succeeded in changing an individual's life and giving them some level of independent mobility. The brain-spine interface used an artificial intelligence thinking decoder to interpret Oscom's intentions and allowed him to walk naturally after 12 years. Clearly, this is an indicator of the potential of AI in revolutionizing medical treatment. The Washington Post brings us Narrative B. While futurist technology may eventually help many more spinal cord injury and stroke patients with paralysis and mobility issues, there are many challenges that may hinder its real-world application. The treatment is still experimental and is many years away from being widely available to paralyzed patients. Moreover, the procedure is invasive and requires multiple surgeries. The use of this kind of AI technology in medicine must be met with some skepticism as wider employment of the innovation comes with its own collection of moral, medical, and technological risks. As expected, the nerds from Metaculus are giving us their narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that the U.S. FDA will authorize 1,000 artificial intelligence machine learning-enabled medical devices by September of 2025. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, May 26th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. If you'd like more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.